Good morning. Good morning. I, uh, I'm a little concerned as Jim prayed that I would have fresh breath, that I am in need of a Tic Tac. So let me know after service if, uh, if I have some halitosis going on. Uh, well, it is good to be with you this morning. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 is where we'll be at today. Matthew chapter 16. Now at this point in human history, uh, scientists estimate that there are over 10,000 diseases known to man. 10,000, ranging anywhere from the common cold uh, to something called RPI deficiency. There's only been one case of it. It's the rarest disease in the world. Some of these diseases barely affect daily life, while others are absolutely fatal. Yet these diseases only affect our mortal, material bodies. And in this morning's text, we will see three spiritual diseases and their results through Jesus' discussion with his disciples about the leaven of the Jewish religious leaders. And these three spiritual diseases, unbelief, earthly-mindedness, and, and false teaching, uh, have not been eradicated like smallpox, but cases are still extremely prevalent in humans to this day. Make no mistake, though. Uh, even though these are spiritual diseases, not physical diseases, they can still have a destructive effect in your life. Unfortunately, there is a cure. Now let's read our text. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and, and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's pray as we come to God's word today. Our Lord and our God, we, uh, we come to you needing to know what you have to say. Oh Lord, we do not want to go through life trying to guess or piece things together on our own. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word as a sure and steady guide, as an infallible and inspired and perfect record and revelation of who you are, what you have done, what you are doing. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would use it to diagnose in us if any of these spiritual diseases that we'll see this morning are present. And we thank you, Lord, that though we can deceive ourselves, your, your spirit uh, cannot be deceived. And that as your word is preached, your spirit is at work in the hearts of your people. And we ask that it would be so today. 
And Lord, I, I pray for your help in proclaiming your word that uh, you would help me to be clear and that Christ would be exalted for the benefit of your people. I ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Three spiritual diseases this morning, unbelief, earthly mindedness, and false teaching. The first that uh, we see in verses 1 through 4 is unbelief, which puts God on trial. If you were here last week, we left off with the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles. This was a, a miracle that, among other things, displayed God's plan to bless the Gentile nations through Jesus. And at the very end of that section, uh, chapter 15, verse 39, Jesus and his disciples, they get into a boat and they begin to travel across the Sea of Galilee to Magadan, which is kind of on the northwest corner of the sea in the Jewish region of Galilee. And while Jesus and his disciples are there, they're visited by another group of Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, we're familiar with the Pharisees. We've seen them a number of times in Matthew's Gospel so far. Um, these were the rabbis that would teach among the people, right? They were theologically conservative. They believed that the Torah was God's word, and they even uh, upheld the oral tradition. They were really, really concerned about doing what God said. And we've looked at how they got off track, uh, but that's, that was their goal. The Sadducees we're less familiar with, though, right? We haven't seen them really so far in Matthew's Gospel yet. And, and these were the religious rivals of the Pharisees. They were not friends. They were uh, politically powerful. They were connected to the lineage of the high priests. They were primarily um, concerned with and, and influential in the temple. That was their domain, the temple. And theologically, they were, uh, what we would say, liberal. They denied the resurrection. They denied the existence of angels. They denied the existence of the soul. They uh, did not hold to all of the Old Testament scriptures as being from God. They differed from the Pharisees on many, many points. And because of that, these two groups were very hostile to each other. We see that in the book of Acts. Paul brings up the resurrection and they start fighting. And that makes their alliance here in verse 1 very, very striking. These two groups must have seen Jesus as such a great threat that they needed to team up to work against him. As the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they come to Jesus asking for a sign from heaven, which really is a sign from God, to test him, we read. Uh, literally in, in the Greek, to prove to them. Their motives are clear. They come to Jesus requesting a sign so that he can prove to them that he is who he says he is. To prove that he has authority from God. Um, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees seem to think that they are the gatekeepers of approval for validating the messengers that God sends. It's great that you're here, but you've got you to gotta get the stamp from us. And this tendency right, of the Jewish leaders to seek signs, this was not isolated to this one event. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.22 says, uh, Greeks seek wisdom and Jews demand signs. Signs were often a way that God would display his power and his validation for one of his prophets. And so they would demand signs. Now the fact that they're coming to Jesus and demanding a sign, that may seem like a kind of open-mindedness. Hey, we're willing to consider what you have to say. We're willing to let you uh, be a teacher um, as long as we see a sign. Right? As long as you can do this, then yeah, we'll, we'll believe, sure. But the reality is that demanding signs is not an action that comes from faith. It is an action that comes from unbelief. Now take the example of Gideon and his fleece in the Old Testament. 
Uh, Gideon was a man who was characterized by fearful doubt and unbelief in what God said to him. That led him to ask for a sign. There's no way that God can use me to deliver the people of Israel. So we have to test it, right? We have to put a, a fleece out there. Now, God's word is not sufficient for those who demand signs. They want more. They want more. Yet those who have faith, as we've seen in Matthew's gospel, they don't demand signs at all. Take the Canaanite woman we saw last week. She hadn't seen any of Jesus' miracles. It's probably safe to say that since she lived so far away. But she believed in what she heard. In what she heard. Faith comes by hearing. As Jesus says to his disciples after the resurrection in John 20, 29, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus seems to have a very little time or patience for the self-righteous religious leaders here. And his response to them in verses 2 and uh, really down to 4 is, is nothing less than a rebuke. We see him answer them in verse 2, and, and he criticizes them. And he points out, you do not understand what's happening here. Uh, he, he first points out to them that they, they're quite capable of discerning the weather. They can look in the sky. They can see if it's a red sky at night, it'll be calm weather the next day. If it's a red sky in the morning, a storm is coming. Uh, we have a similar proverb, right? Red at night, sailors delight. Red in the morning, sailor take warning. So the religious leaders are able to look at the color of the sky. They can interpret the significance and meaning. But when it comes to the signs of the times, Jesus says, they don't understand what's going on at all. Now here's the thing. Um, do you need to be a Christian to be a meteorologist? Nope. Right? You, you don't need to have the Holy Spirit working in you to read the weather. You don't need to be humble to read the weather. You don't need faith to read the weather, right? Well, maybe you need a little bit of faith, but you, you really don't need the divine gift of faith, right, to understand the weather. But discerning the signs of the times is a different story. What does that phrase mean, the signs of the times? No, really, it refers to the indicators of what God is doing through Christ. Right? That, that word times, um, it's not just time of day, right? It's really kind of the, the season at which God is at work through Christ. The coming of the kingdom of heaven, which was proclaimed by Jesus' teaching, uh, it was demonstrated by his healing ministry. But to discern those things, to understand what they mean and their significance, requires faith and the work of the Spirit. As, as Jesus said in Matthew 13, the Father must give the ability to see and understand that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But the Sadducees and Pharisees don't grasp this. They don't understand it at all. And as a result, whether they realize it or not, they're in opposition to the kingdom of heaven. They're spiritually blind. They're in a state of unbelief. That's why they come to Jesus demanding a sign. There are signs all around them. They could go ask the Canaanite woman what Jesus did. They could go ask the centurion what Jesus did. They could go... Watch the crowds get healed for days on end. They could talk to the 4,000 Gentiles that Jesus just fed. There's no lack of signs here, but the Sadducees and Pharisees are blind to what they mean. They're blind to it. They don't understand. They cannot interpret them. They don't see the king of the kingdom is right in front of them. 
And so as we look at verse 4, we, we see Jesus rightly describing their spiritual condition. They are an evil and adulterous generation. The evidence of that being that they demand a sign. That's the kind of generation, Jesus says, that demands a sign, an evil and adulterous one. And this isn't the first time we've heard this. Jesus lays this charge at the feet of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he did that before in Matthew 12 with the Pharisees and the scribes. To demand signs like the, uh, the leaders are doing here is a sign of an adulterous and evil heart, an unbelieving heart. Why? Well, think about it. To demand signs or proof or evidence is a demand that is rooted in skeptical unbelief. Right? To demand signs like this is basically to say, I'm already convinced that this is not true. It's your job to change my mind. I'm already convinced that this is XYZ. You have the burden and responsibility to change my mind. What's the starting place of that? I already don't believe. You have to make me believe. The starting place is skeptical unbelief. Now, it's certainly not wrong to ask questions of God. We see that in the Bible. It's not uh, always wrong to struggle with doubts. Sometimes Christians have doubts and wrestle with that. That's normal. But it's very different than what we see the religious leaders doing here. They're placing Jesus on trial. They're placing Jesus on trial. They are requiring him to pass their test. Right? They're setting the standard for Jesus Christ. Let's think about that for a minute. They're setting the standard for the Son of God. Really, they're putting God on trial. They're approaching God incarnate as if they were in the place to judge and approve him. Many modern people approach God the exact same way. C.S. Lewis writes about the way man views himself in his book, God in the Dock. In the Dock in England, that's where uh, the defendant sits in court. Man is the judge. God is in the dock. Now, man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, then man's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. That is the way many people approach God today. I don't believe in God. He has to give me proof to change my mind. To demand signs is to put God himself on trial. Now, friend, do you approach God this way? Do you approach God this way? Uh, and even as Christians, we can still deal with unbelief at times. Are you unsatisfied with what God has said in his word? And as a result, do you demand certain things of him to prove his love or his care for you? Well, God, you know, if you really love me, then you'll do this, 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 this. If you're really there, then you would do this, 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 this. If you are who you say you are, then you should have done this, this, this. That's unbelief. That's saying that what God has said is not enough. It's not enough. And, and, and maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you would say that until God provides proof of his existence to you or some kind of evidence to you, that you won't believe in him. Well, this is unbelief as well. But let me ask you, what position are you in 
as a tiny human being to judge God? What position are you in as the creation to judge the Creator? What makes you think that God is obligated to meet your standard of proof? That God's given ample evidence of ex existence in the created world, and He's spoken through His Word, and none of us stand in the place of judgment against God. Now, Jesus is no trained monkey. Jesus rarely cares about meeting other people's approval. And he refuses to give an evil and adulterous generation a sign, he says in verse 4. No sign will be given to it. Because Jesus knows his authority and his teaching comes from God the Father. He doesn't need to prove that to anybody. He doesn't care what they think. He knows what is true. So they get no sign except for one, the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. Now, Jesus mentioned the sign of Jonah back in Matthew 12 as well. Um, but let's refresh our memories a little bit on what the sign of Jonah is. What does that mean? Now, Jonah, we're probably all familiar with the story, kids, right? Jonah, the guy who got swallowed by the enormous fish and lived in the belly of the fish for three days. Now, he's a prophet sent by God to Nineveh. He didn't want to go, tried to run away, gets thrown overboard off the boat he's escaping in, and uh, God saves him, rescues him by having him swallowed by this giant fish. Now, it is not normal that a person survives inside a giant fish for three days. That doesn't happen under normal circumstances. That's why it's a miracle, right? And when Jonah was spat up out of that giant fish, what did that prove? It proved that he really was a prophet sent by God. It proved his message really was from God. It was a sign to the Ninevites, this man speaks for God. And his message of judgment is something to be taken seriously. This is the same kind of sign that Jesus says will be given to an evil and adulterous generation. But Jonah's been dead for years and years and years. So what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about his own death and resurrection. In Matthew 12, 40, Jesus said, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The only sign that the Pharisees and Sadducees would receive was the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is like God's stamp of approval. That's like God's vindication. As Romans 1, 4 says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Right now, here's the thing. Anybody can claim to be the Son of God, and many people have. Your claims fall pretty flat when you die just like everybody else and you stay dead just like everybody else. That's what's so significant about the resurrection. That's what's so incredible about it. It is a sign that God had indeed sent Jesus Christ, that Jesus' claims were true because liars don't come back from the dead, right? They uh, are judged by God and yet Jesus comes back. That's the Father saying, I approve of this sacrifice. I approve of this man who is God and his message. It was a sign that God had indeed promised both judgment for those who rejected his son and salvation for those who received his son by faith. And the resurrection stands as a sign to those realities today. That's the only sign this evil and adulterous generation would get, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But tragically, when we get to the end of Matthew, we see that their unbelief is so deep and so hardened that when Jesus does rise from the dead, they don't publicly deny it. 
but they try to cover it up. They know he they know he was not taken out of the grave by his disciples, and yet they try to spread this rumor to cover it up. Signs do not change unbelief. The only thing that can cure unbelief for those who are not Christians is God's sovereign work of regeneration and you putting faith in Christ and repenting of sin. Right? That's the cure for unbelief. It's to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ which God allows us to do by His grace. But again, even as Christians, we can struggle with unbelief sometimes, can't we? We find ourselves afflicted by this spiritual disease. And I think for Christians, though we may sometimes wonder, well, is God really there? We, sometimes Christians have those kinds of doubts, but I think more often than that, it's unbelief in the character of God. Now, the great hymn writer John Newton, who also wrote Amazing Grace, penned another hymn called Begone Unbelief, in which he describes his own struggle with doubting God's character and provision in the midst of trials. That tends to be, I think, where we struggle most. What was the cure for his unbelief? It was reminding himself of Christ's past, present, and future faithfulness. And this is the same cure for our unbelief and doubts as well. Remembering how Christ has been faithful in the past, Reminding ourselves of how He is currently with us in the trouble that we face and resolving that He will continue to be faithful to us in the future as well. Our first spiritual disease, unbelief. Christ the cure. From Magadan, Jesus and His disciples, they head across the Sea to Bethsaida according to Mark's Gospel, which is on the northeastern shore. And, and once they arrive there, we see the next spiritual disease, earthly mindedness in verses 5 through 11. Earthly mindedness, verses 5 through 11. And earthly mindedness misses spiritual truths. Now, the disciples have rowed uh, dozens of miles across the sea, and once they reach the other side, tragedy strikes. Verse 5 They had forgotten to bring any bread. Now, kids, you're here at church. Uh, with your parents this morning, can you imagine if your parents didn't bring any snacks for you? It would be terrible. It'd be terrible. That's my worst nightmare, going somewhere and there's no food. Now, I would have been the disciple that had secretly packed a lunch for myself, right? I don't, I don't trust other people to provide food for me. And Mark mentions they had a single loaf, but that's not enough to feed 13 grown men. But this lack of bread provides Jesus an opportunity to speak to the disciples. And in verse 6, he tells them, Watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is really a parable of sorts. It's, it's figurative language with a deeper meaning. But the disciples don't quite understand. They don't get it. They, they don't get Jesus' point. And they start talking to each other in verse 7. They're discussing it amongst themselves, saying, We, we brought no bread. Why is Jesus talking about leaven? We don't have any bread here in the boat. It seems that maybe they thought Jesus uh, was under the impression they got bread from the Pharisees and Sadducees. Maybe, maybe they think, you know, they, they picked some up on their way out of town from the religious leaders. It's kind of hard to tell the source of their confusion here. But it is clear they think Jesus is literally talking about bread, food. That's what they think he means. And, and, and Jesus is aware of their discussion. And he responds to them. He, he chides them a little bit. In verse 8, he, he begins by describing them as, you of little faith. You of little faith. 
Again, they have some faith, right? They're, they're not you of no faith. They have little faith, but some faith. They're true disciples, but weak ones. They should have had more understanding than they do. Why are they talking about literal bread or the fact they lack bread? Why is that their focus? And the answer is earthly mindedness. Earthly mindedness. Now, what is earthly mindedness? It's primarily being concerned with the things of earth rather than the things of heaven. Primarily being concerned with the things of earth rather than the things of heaven. It's, it's thinking about things in an earthly way without spiritual significance or understanding. Earthly mindedness could be summed up in 1 Corinthians 15.32. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Right? Those are your concerns. Let's eat, drink, tomorrow we die. Live a good life here and now. Enjoy the best of what the world has to offer and, and that's it. Earthly mindedness. Uh, statistics show that this is actually the number one disease found in American Christians. Uh, not real statistics, I made that up. But it's a focus on the here and now, right? We live in a consumeristic culture. We are constantly bombarded by advertisements. You deserve this new car. I saw the Amazon truck pass by. Uh, warning, happiness inside. Right? We're bombarded with the message that the things of earth will bring us happiness and joy and satisfaction all the time. All the time. That's part of our culture. Unfortunately. It's a focus on the here and now where, where the material aspects of life are the main focus to the exclusion of spiritual considerations. The disciples are earthly minded. They're thinking only about the physical food of bread. They're, they're thinking only about how we don't have any of that. Right? Their understanding of Jesus' teaching cannot go further than physical bread because that's what they're concerned about. And we see this earthly mindedness brought out even further in Jesus' response to them in verse 9 through 10. Uh, first, their earthly mindedness is focused on the here and now. Right? Jesus says to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? That's all they're thinking about, right? They can't perceive that Jesus would be talking about anything else. The material world is their concern. Uh, friends, do you find yourself similarly being consumed with the concerns of life in this world as the ultimate good? Are, are your thoughts focused on what you have or don't have or what you need or want? Are those the things that you find yourself dwelling on? That's, that's earthly mindedness. Second, their earthly mindedness, earthly mindedness causes them to forget what God has done. Where were they before this? Just a short time ago, right? Jesus reminds them, you've forgotten all about the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000. Don't you remember, he says? And if you recall, the disciples are the ones handing out the bread and the fish, and the disciples are the ones going around with the baskets, putting in the leftovers. They, they, they had front row seats to the miraculous providence of God. And they seem to have forgotten all about it. We don't have any bread. And Jesus is like, did you guys forget? I just fed tens of thousands of people. I'm going to take care of you. It's okay. But they have forgotten. And as a result, they're worried. They, they, they have no bread. They don't remember how Jesus provided for them in the past. Uh, friends, you find yourself troubled by your circumstances to the point that you forget how God has helped you in the past. That's earthly mindedness. Now, third, the disciples' earthly mindedness fails to grasp the spiritual significance of what Jesus is saying. They're focused on bread as the number one thing, and, 
that keeps them from realizing Jesus' teaching. They filter everything through their earthly lens. And, and, you know, I joked about the American church, but there's a, quite a few grains of seriousness there. We, we see this approach in many American churches today. While, while practical living is good, and we should be concerned about that as Christians, but when that's all that preaching is reduced to, right, five tips for good finances or three tips for a happy marriage, that's earthly-mindedness. It, it, it is often devoid of any spiritual doctrine or substance. Now, the Bible does not contain self-help information. It's not the point of the Bible. It is a spiritual story of redemption and the revelation of God's will for salvation and life and godliness. Right? We want to have practical tips for living. That's good. We want that. But when that's married to good doctrine, that's what we need. That's what we need. Not just earthly-mindedness. Right? And unfortunately, it's all too common, right? And, and, and again, we live in a culture that pushes this at us. We have so many different earthly pursuits and pleasures and problems to occupy our attention. So what do we do? What are we to do? Is to have our minds centered on Christ and the glory of God. Why should you want a healthy marriage? To honor Christ. That should be the number one goal, to honor Christ. Not to be happy, but to honor him. Why should you want to resist temptation to sin, to glorify God? Right? Why should you want to be wise in your finances? To honor Christ, right? Why should you discipline your children? That they might glorify God. Why should you be a hard worker? To honor Christ in the workplace, right? That should be the number one goal. Not the only goal, but the chief goal. When we take God out as the central, overarching, defining reality for life, you're going you're gonna to deal with earthly-mindedness. It's guaranteed. It will happen. When we just treat God like a compartment in our life, like I got my, my life at home, I got my hobbies, I got my work, and then I got God over here for two hours on a Sunday, right? You're going to be earthly-minded. You already are, if that's the way you approach life. But when everything else is put underneath God, when, everything, when God is the compartment that everything else fits into, earthly-mindedness earthly starts to fade away. Because God becomes the center. His glory becomes the goal. But it appears the disciples do not have Christ and His power at the center of their minds. They've forgotten all about what He's done, and they are fixed on water and flour and leaven. We can, we can all too quickly lose sight of heaven when all we see is earth. But Jesus, being the good teacher and the good shepherd that he is, he's not going to let his people remain earthly-minded for long. Right? He, he's going to teach them. He's going to bring them to where they need to be. And we see that in our last point. False teaching contaminates God's people. Now, Jesus continues correcting the disciples in verse 11, and he makes very clear to them in, in no uncertain terms, how is it you fail to understand that I wasn't talking about bread? So they should realize, okay, Jesus is not talking about bread. He's making it as simple as he can for them. It's not about bread. It's not the point. And he restates what he said earlier, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And now the disciples begin to understand as we see in verse 12. Now the dots start to connect. Now things are clicking together. He's not talking about the leaven of bread. He's talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Oh, 
He's telling them, watch out, beware of the false teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, Jesus compares their false teaching to leaven for good reason. We see that in Galatians 5.5 as well. Leaven spreads, right, throughout the flour it's placed in. False teaching spreads. Leaven contaminates that which is unleavened. False teaching contaminates and leavens the pure, uh, unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 1 Corinthians 5.8, the church. Leaven has an influential effect in flour, causes it to rise. False teaching has an influential effect in leading God's people away from the truth. So it's an appropriate analogy. And we see a similar one. It's compared to gangrene in 2 Timothy 2.17. And gangrene has all these same results, spreading, contaminating, influencing. Jesus is being very clear here. The teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees is to be avoided because it is spiritually dangerous and deadly to God's people. Now, simply talking about false teachers um, can tend to make some Christians today a little uncomfortable. Right? Um, and there, there's been a, a, I think a, a, an emphasis on a kind of unity that is only superficial in nature. Right? We, we want to have unity, so we're not going to talk about false teaching or bad doctrine because that's harsh, that's unloving. Right? Um, but, but I have to ask, was Jesus being harsh and unloving in the way he describes the Pharisees and Sadducees here? No. He's warning his disciples about a significant spiritual danger because truth matters. It would actually be unloving for Jesus not to tell them, beware the leaven of the Sadducees and Pharisees. When I go on a hike with my kids in the summertime, I say, hey guys, we need to watch out for rattlesnakes. They're out here. We need to be careful. We need to have our eyes on the path, be listening, and just be paying attention. Beware. That is an act of love because I want my kids to be safe. I don't want them to get bit by a rattlesnake. If I didn't tell my kids that, but I knew the rattlesnakes were there, that would not be loving, would it? I wouldn't be putting the good of my children uh, as a priority. And so Jesus telling his disciples, beware of this. That is an act of love. Right? What they are teaching is in conflict with what Jesus is teaching. You can't follow both is the thing, right? You can't follow the Sadducees and Pharisees and Jesus. Right? You can't follow Jesus and false teaching. One leads to life, the other leads to death. So being aware of this is very important. That's why Jesus says it two times in this paragraph. And this warning actually goes beyond the Pharisees and Sadducees. This warning to beware of false teaching. In fact, every book of the New Testament, except Philemon, explicitly addresses various kinds of false teachers. If it's so prevalent in the New Testament, it probably, probably matters. It's probably something to be aware of, right? And, and again, right, if I lived in a different country, I would talk about a different country, but we live in America. And America has become a haven for false teaching. Uh, take the prosperity gospel, which teaches that Jesus died to make you healthy and wealthy and likable and prosperous. That is false teaching. That is a false gospel. Take the claim of, of some churches that there are still prophets and apostles today who bring new authoritative revelation from God. In addition to the scriptures, that is false teaching. Now take the fact that half of the world's 10,000 cults started in America. Half of the world's 10,000 cults started here in the U.S. Right, take the fact that the widespread prominence of legalism on one hand Right? You need to follow these man-made rules to be right with God. 
on, on one hand, and on the other, antinomianism. You don't need to follow any of God's commands because all we care about is grace. Obedience, holiness, don't worry about it. That's false teaching, right? There's, and I don't say this is a scare tactic or anything, but just the reality, friends, is there's false teaching everywhere. There are TV stations dedicated to false teachers. It is a dangerous spiritual disease, and it is in the world we, we live in. So how do we get inoculated against false teaching? Well, a major part is by being filled with sound teaching. We need to study our Bible. We need to know the Word of God. We need to listen to faithful and accurate teaching of Scripture. We need to have a good grasp on Christian doctrine and theology. And, and you know, today there, there's a recoil against the study of doctrine and theology, which studying theology to make yourself smarter, that's not going to help you at all. That's not going to help you at all. But studying theology so you can know and love God more and be more faithful to his word, that's great. That's great. Right? If we don't care about doctrine and we don't want to um, have a right understanding of what God's word says, we're like, we're like people who did not wash their hands right, before germs were discovered. All of these spiritual diseases, unbelief, earthly-mindedness, false teaching, they have a common treatment. If we meditate on the goodness of Christ, if we believe and view Him as our greatest treasure, as the most wonderful thing we could ever possess, the most wonderful one we could ever know, if we believe in His Word and if we hide His Word in our hearts, if we treasure Christ and His revelation to us in Scripture, not only will that give us good spiritual immune systems, but it will actually help us recover from these spiritual diseases that may plague us. Really, we could boil it down to sin is the problem. Christ is the cure. If you find yourself afflicted by one of these this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, the answer is the same. You need Christ. You need Christ. You need Christ to redeem you from unbelief, to be the rock of your faith. You need Christ to point to the eternal inheritance you have in Him, which is far better than what this world could offer. Uh, you need Christ, who is the Word of God, who is the way, the truth, and the life, to prevent against false teaching and lead you in paths of righteousness. So wherever you're at this morning, friend, you need Christ, and God has provided him for you. You merely must come to him by faith and receive him. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, our Lord, we consider ourselves before you. And Lord, we confess that we are too often plagued by, plagued by the troubles of our own hearts and our own souls that we find ourselves at times struggling to have confidence in you, Lord, though with our lips we would say, yes, God is sovereign, but in our hearts we, we struggle to trust your goodness. We struggle to believe that in our suffering you are still good. Now, Lord, we confess at times that our concerns are wrapped up in the things of this world which are passing away rather than finding our ultimate delight and joy in Christ and his blessings. And Lord, at times we may have even been carried away with false doctrine. 
Lord, perhaps out of ignorance, perhaps out of apathy. But Lord, we need Christ. We need Christ to shepherd us, to lead us to those green pastures and beside still waters which satisfy our souls. And Father, we thank you that you have given all of Christ to us. That by faith he is ours and we are his. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to deal with the disease of unbelief and earthly mindedness and false teaching by pursuing more of Christ. That he would be our greatest treasure. And we ask this in his name. Amen.